Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, The Guardian trials interactive storytelling for audio and Twitter brings a new approach to live video. Plus, Murdoch commits to Sky News for another decade. The BBC brings in the big guns to sell shows abroad. Advertisers bail from the Daily Mail. And hey Siri, the reviews are in on Apple's new HomePod. Plus, in the Media Quiz, we play blockbusters. You can hum your own theme tune, it's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today is broadcasting consultant Paul Robinson. Uh, Paul, were you ever an asset to Czechoslovakia in the 1980s? Uh, Unlikely. I've been to Prague a couple of times. That's it. Fake news then. Fake news. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, What have you been working on this week, Paul? Um, I've been to Miami. Oh, not bad. It's nice and warm, actually. 26 degrees. I recommend it. Uh, and also joining us this week is BBC reporter and host of the Gender Not podcast, Nastaran Tavakoli Farr. Uh, Naz, you are hosting your first live edition of the Gender Not coming up this week. Yeah, so that'll be on Monday. We're gonna be we're gonna be discussing the question: Can women break into boys' clubs? Um, we've got, and we've got Michaela from the last series of The Apprentice and journalist Chris Hemmings, so I'm quite excited. Oh, Chris Hemmings! I interviewed him on in the mailroom last week. Fiery. Yeah, he's great. Passionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we want a sort of male perspective on men not letting women into clubs and spaces and stuff. So, yeah, we've had an interesting chat. I mean, very zeitgeisty conversation that you're having on the gender not, obviously, and one that has, you know, really, since you started the show, become more and more prevalent. Do you feel that's part of the reason you're finding your audience? Yeah, I guess because a lot of it is just conversations we're all having. So it's kind of like untangling the nuances of all those. Paul, would you ever go and watch a live podcast being recorded? I mean, obviously, people would pay a fortune to watch this. I probably would, actually, depending on the guests. Yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would. I think there's a certain devotion, isn't there, that comes from a podcast fan base, which, you know, perhaps you don't get when you just, you know, host a live Q&A on stage and no one knows, you know, what to expect. Yeah, no, it's been interesting being in podcasts and looking at the audience because there's a sort of, yeah, there is quite a devoted following, so there's something quite nice about that. Are you doing party bags? That's a good idea. I'm going to, th- I'm going to look into that. <laughs> Think about it, seriously. Uh, right, um, we're actually going to talk about podcasting in our first story. Have you seen what The Guardian have launched in the last few weeks? It is an innovative storytelling platform. That's what they call it anyway. Uh, in its first trial, audio producer Josie Holtzman and data editor Mona Shalabi have a new podcast, Strange Bird, integrating visual content, so illustrative pictures, data visualizations, and links on top of the podcast as you listen. Is that a reasonable summary, Paul? That's basically what it is. It's a very good summary. 
can you add to it? <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, I think it's really interesting The Guardian are doing this because I just wanted to sort of draw back, you know, 12, 15 years when this podcast, which originally was the Guardian media podcast, started in the old Guardian offices in Farringdon Road uh, with Matt Wells, who was then the media editor. And it was literally a, a sort of bathroom with cardboard boxes on the wall. It was the egg boxes and it was so basic. But The Guardian was sort of, I guess, at the really beginning of podcasts in terms of newspapers anyway, national newspapers doing that um, and, and, saw, and saw the opportunity and then sadly decided to stop. Um, I wonder well, about... decided to stop doing this one. Stop doing this one, yes. And you say yes. sadly, but uh, here, well, here we all are. We, we are. I, I, think the Guardian, I think The Guardian made a mistake because this is a huge success and continues to be so without The Guardian, but I think they, they missed the trick. But my point is this. The thing about podcasts is when we did that 12 years ago, people didn't really know what podcasts were, but now podcasts have become really quite cool and also becoming a commercial opportunity as well as being a way to reach communities in the way that you were just describing. I, I was doing a focus script this week, actually, with a bunch of fairly hard-bitten uh, media execs for another organization who were asking about how better to communicate. And what was interesting was in this room of people ranging from 25 to 55, four or five said, I'd like more podcasts. We'd like podcasts actually explaining more about technology and so on. And, and the rationale they gave was that the podcast is about um, being able to download and get information when I don't have to read it, when I'm in a mood or when the occasion is right to listen and have someone talk to me or hear experts share their views and share their opinions. So I think in a way the podcast has got a sort of pureness to it, which is about that. It's about that relationship, that closeness, that intimacy, that ability to really engage on topics in detail. Um, and I wonder whether all these bells and whistles actually are needed. And I just draw a parallel with radio, because in a way, a podcast is just a modern version of a radio program that's actually not broadcast. It's when you want to listen to it, or a topic you want to listen to. And radio has always been successful because it's been simple. You know, it's about great spoken word, interesting people saying interesting things that you really engage with. And so I think podcasts are like that. So I would question whether this is the right strategy. Okay, so, but talk us through the bells and whistles then. Have you, have you actually seen what they're doing? So for people who haven't actually logged on and had a look at this podcast, you, you basically you, you press play and you don't have to listen through an app, right? You can listen through Chrome or Safari, that's the idea, and it flashes up pictures whilst you're listening. So show notes, basically. But, but that means you've got to look at your device, you know, the yes. point is, you, you know, you're on the tube or somewhere, you put your headphones on and you're immersed in the podcast, close your eyes and you just get in that world. You don't want to start looking at stuff, you don't want stuff pushed at you. The whole point is you're not in that mood. I think the mindset of podcasts is not to have pushed stuff at you. Okay, I'm that... old and, you, and you're old. Naz, you're less old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what attracts you to podcasting? Because... I don't, do you remember the first series of Startup on Gimlet? Yeah. The big idea of yeah. Startup, wasn't it, was him explaining... The podcast hasn't changed since the RSS feed in 2006 or whatever it was. Yeah. It's still basically the same. You get an audio file, can't do anything with it. It's not dynamic. It hasn't been augmented. And actually, they've not changed what they're doing really either, have they? It is still a basic MP3 file. No, totally, because like, a good podcast is a good compelling series of guests. It's beautifully presented. It's a good story. So when I was looking at The Guardian's new podcast sort of plans it, it was just overwhelming to me like this is not why I listen to a podcast to like I don't know see all these statistics and graphs and then there's the argument that yeah but what if people want to find out more and I find if something is so intriguing that you want to find out more you just google it later but I, I just I don't know I think it was too much it takes away from the pureness and what makes podcasts really powerful but it does liberate listeners from having to be on an app and that maybe is a significant change, isn't it? If, if everyone innovated in that space so that actually all podcasts, you just press play and you didn't have to subscribe and it was just a brand that existed outside of the world of 
Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts. Yeah, but I think subscribing to podcasts makes you sort of feel more like you're part of the journey of um, of the podcast, especially podcasts which, you know, might have a narrative arc or they might be sort of following a certain theme or something. I actually quite like getting those notifications where it's like, oh, now we've got a new thing rather than, you know, randomly stumbling on it whenever I'm on the website. I, I agree, because I think a podcast is about a community, actually. I think you're part of something, you know, you have shared beliefs, shared views, you're probably very passionate about a particular topic. So it is a community, and I think, therefore, it doesn't matter that it's an app. Okay, but as you say, Guardian have been doing podcasts for a very long time. Good to see them innovating again in this space, no, isn't it, rather than closing good, things I think down. This is probably wrong. Okay. But I, can I say something a bit cynical? Yes, please. <laughs> you don't need to ask permission for that on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like when I was reading this, it reminds me of a lot of, um, a few years ago, there was a lot of buzz about data viz and all this stuff. Mm. And the sort of things which I think are more exciting to quote-unquote innovative people than to most audience members. So I just read this and I was like, this is the sort of thing that's exciting, like... Um, media innovators rather than your listener. I mean, I think that's probably true. But then you think, you know, with augmented reality, you could have said the same thing, couldn't you? But then you did get Pokemon Go. I mean, maybe this... that was pretty much it, though. Sure. But maybe this isn't, this particular podcast isn't the application of this technology, but one will come along. But I think the mindset of Pokemon Go or any AR application is completely different. With AR, you're looking for a richer experience. You're not with a podcast. It's about the things you've just been saying, which is about the, the guests, about the content, about the purity of the audio, the production. That's what makes the podcast special. You've got to stick to the knitting. Okay, we're going to talk about The Guardian some more. Hey, we've got a new producer. We're not talking about the BBC. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that former BuzzFeed political editor Jim Waterson has announced he's going to be The Guardian's media editor. He's going to be replacing Graham Ruddick, who moves to become assistant business editor at The Times. Um, and Naz, did you see what Jim wrote on Twitter? He said, um, media is increasingly politicised, so probably needs to be covered in the same way that we cover politics. Do you agree? Reading that, I was thinking of the whole echo chamber thing and actually um, something that might come up later, but to do with sort of uh, debate circles within different publications and different, yeah, different modes of thinking. So I can, yeah, it does feel, media does feel a little bit like politics where you've got your different ideologies. Um, But in a way, it's always been that way, no? I I don't know if we're just more aware of this dynamic existing well also it's also always been about press barons behind the scenes and about mergers and acquisitions and big moves of the same limited number of people within organizations paul's nodding um so in that way maybe we've been missing someone to treat it like politics i i think that's probably true i mean i i think politics has always been part of media i mean gosh you know take a radio example i mean you know radio started when governments changed hands you know certain governments didn't approve and so on it's always been the case look at the story we're going to talk about in a minute which is news core and, and the 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 Fox merger. Um, it's always been there. I think the issue now is, of course, it's a lot more pertinent because people can comment about it. They've got access. They've got ways of actually communicating and sharing. Um, I think it's an interesting uh, appointment. I think it's. I don't know this guy at all, but I mean, for obviously coming from BuzzFeed, you know, he's a smart guy. So it's interesting the direction the Guardian sees themselves going. The comment about media becoming increasingly politicised. So we'll cover it that way. I think is a bit of self-justification of his role. I don't think that actually is the substance of this at all. I think the important thing is this guy's got a skill set the Guardian haven't got and that's going to be very valuable to them. And is that some of, some of that skill set something that BuzzFeed have that The Guardian don't, Naz? I mean, what is it that online operators can bring to traditional media companies, do you think? This sounds maybe obvious, but being quick to react because discussions and debates and things change so quickly right now. So I guess somewhere like BuzzFeed, they're quite aware of that. Like the speed of change and stuff. And, and probably not a reluctance to do social first. I mean, uh, you know, one way that Jim Watson has made his name is by basically, you know, tweeting news stories 
before he's written his post <laughs> for BuzzFeed. Um, and I think there's still a reluctance amongst traditional media journalists to do that. Yeah, of course there is. And, and remember, you know, all the national newspapers, every print medium is desperately trying to reinvent itself. I mean, you know, it's, it's in decline. Uh, circulation numbers are going down. Advertising is going down. You know, this is risk of extinction. So um, smart to make a bold appointment, which this is. So I think uh, they've done the right thing. OK, let's talk about Twitter. They've been quietly rolling out live streaming local news. Now, these broadcasts appear in a window next to your timeline during major breaking news uh, and had its first major application during the Florida school shooting uh, in the past week. Did you see this actually happening live? I must say I missed it. Well, I was in the region, so I, w- I was well aware of it and was obviously looking at the local local coverage. But did you um, see it on Twitter? Did no, I, I didn't. I didn't. No. And I don't think of Twitter for that, actually. I don't think of Twitter for news. I think that's, that's for me, that's the mindset problem. For me, Twitter is about, you know, short comments, quickly fired off. I don't think about Twitter as being for news, and therefore I don't use Twitter for news, and therefore I don't trust Twitter for news. Oh, I totally use Twitter for news. Like, it's my first news source. So um, just having that live video feature, which... Has been a few weeks or something. I've noticed it for a while now. I find okay, it talk me really... through what the experience is because I literally haven't seen. I've just seen screen grabs. So um, you you have like a small video feed on the side. So you've got your tweets in the main sort of area where you see the tweets. Even on then, app, not just on desktop. You can. Um, to be it. honest, I've only seen it on desktop. Okay. But that's because I don't use Twitter on my phone as much. Um, but I've uh, on desktop. Yeah, it's on one side. So while you're scrolling, you have the the sort of live news video clip video sort of feature and did you find yourself sucked into watching the video yes um i wasn't actually online during the florida situation but yeah i do often what what often happens is i have the video playing and the sound up while i'm scrolling the you know the twitter feed as well but i totally go for twitter for my news like that's that's my news source i mean i think increasingly paul maybe even you will start going to twitter for news because facebook have declared their intention to dial down their news content, haven't they? So people perhaps who look at other social media sites for news now, I mean, this is clearly Twitter's purpose now, isn't it, is news? It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm the opposite here, and I use Twitter only on my phone. I mean, I haven't got time at my desk to start using social media. I never do. I mean, when I'm at my desk, it's full on, and I haven't got time. So it's always on the phone. Um, and maybe that's part I'm imagining of... you on like a Woody Allen style typewriter now. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. But in the office, it's, in the office, I haven't got time to be you know, looking at other stuff. I'm, I'm literally focused on all the tasks I have to do. Uh, but when I'm actually travelling, you know, on the airway to the airport, uh, uh, you know, on the tube, or well, obviously where there's Wi-Fi, I will have Twitter on, or Twitter, or, or LinkedIn, or whatever. The point is, I don't trust Twitter because I see loads of crap on there. I see loads of opinion, uh, loads of stuff that I know is not right. Therefore, I don't trust it. Uh, in the same way, I wouldn't trust Facebook for news either. I think it's amusing. I think it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm engaged with it, but I don't trust it. Um, I would go to a trusted news source like the BBC or CNN, um, and they, they, I'd use those guys. Well, this but is the they're on they're, Twitter too, though. Exactly. This is the problem yeah. they're trying to combat, isn't it? They're bringing... I don't know if CNN and the BBC are signed up, but they're bringing ABC and other affiliates to Twitter to try and legitimise some of the... I don't think it's going to work. I mean, to me, this is a um, a strategy by Twitter who are really quite desperate to grow. I mean, Twitter are... The stock price has basically... um, uh, not gone anywhere. You know, their their number of new um, uh, users has not gone anywhere. They're they basically have just made a profit for the first time. Well, they've made a modest profit, but it's taken a long time. And you look at you look at I'm the not margin. I'm shares, but I'm the just mar- saying yeah, it's the, not mar- all the bad. margin is terrible. I mean, as a business, it's going nowhere. Um, they've got to do something to improve the business. I see this as an attempt to try and improve the the business, and it's it it needs to do something. But I don't think this is going to work. No. I um, pretty much since Twitter first came out, I, it reminded me of. Um, 
you know where you get your news wires in a newsroom? Like, you know, you've got your AP says this, Reuters says that. I've always seen Twitter as, as a, maybe a more accessible version of that, which is why I've always found it quite exciting. As, the the fact that the public can see what a sort of um, it's raw, isn't it? It is, and I don't know. It, to me, it is like yeah, like where you get your news wires. So it's it what they've done with this video, this live news video feature seems really natural. It seems in t- in keeping with how I've always seen Twitter. Okay, but there's going to be competition, isn't there, for traditional broadcasters to be the affiliate partners providing this video? That's an interesting battle, I think, that hasn't been much documented or commented upon. No, um, and I guess Twitter can capitalise on that quite well. Yeah. It also, I guess, maybe Paul raises concerns about um, the news that their algorithms are flagging as news with a capital N. You know, it's all very well saying, well, we'll bring you live rolling news when a big event's happening. Well, from, from an American perspective, that's the Florida school shooting, but maybe if I live in Ethiopia, it isn't. Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Um, when you look at the coverage of major events in the US... They tend in this country uh, to get a lot more coverage than, for example, similar events in Asia. Um, you know, and I think that's a problem. And I think it's um, you, you are you are of course um, at risk of believing that what you're fed is therefore the total news diary. And of course, it's not the case. So, I mean, I think the ultimate thing is you have to actually look at news from lots of different sources. Um, and and so that's why I, I try and consume as many as I possibly can. Um, and ultimately, you've got to make up your own mind. Um, I mean, the more information you can give people, the better they're able to do that. But um, I, I worry about anybody relying on Facebook or Twitter as a news source if they're not looking at other news sources as well. Right, on to Little John. Ready? Brace yourselves. A rich Little John column in the Daily Mail titled Please Don't Pretend Two Dads Is The New Normal was the final straw this week for holiday merchants Centre Parks and cultural hub the South Bank Centre. They both announced their withdrawing advertising. Little John's article was about Tom Daly, uh, the Olympic diver, and news that he was expecting a child with his partner, Dustin Lance Black. Uh, and this was basically all the result, wasn't it, Naz, of campaigning by Stop Funding Hate. The, um, I mean, they're basically a sort of Twitter pressure group, aren't they? I guess so, yeah. So their thing is, if you advertise in the Daily Mail, we're going to name and shame you, Hotel yeah. Chocolat. Take your ads away. Do you think they have a point? Yes and no. Give us the yes. Brands that are advertising the Daily Mail are funding hate. On the surface, yes, but at the same time, you know, we keep talking about the problem with echo chambers and people not getting different points of view. Maybe in some ways it's powerful where next to an ad like that you have... Sorry, next to a column like that you have an ad from an institution that has a completely different set of values. I don't know, I think there is some value in that, but, you know, it's not just all the same type of values or vision on a page. I mean, the no argument, Paul, would be... Uh, that's capitalism. Like, there's nothing wrong with a brand like Centre Park saying, on the one hand, we want to attract gay dads to come and holiday in our park, and on the other hand, we also want to advertise in Britain's most popular tabloids. Well, I mean, on a commercial point of view, um, any brand wants to make sure the advertising is in an environment which they feel comfortable about and which is going to work for them. Um, and, you know, Centre Parks have a brand. Um, it's a very um, open and, I think, liberal brand. And they clearly feel it's not their values in the Daily Mail. So I applaud them for doing what they did. I think the other value in all that is it's made a big news story out of it. And, of course, I completely accept the idea that it maybe is useful to have counter views on the same page. But also it's very useful that this story broke because it further helped to highlight uh, the issue. And I'm also you know, very glad to see there are other advertisers doing similar things. So there is a bunch of people out there who are very concerned that not only 
only are their ads working, of course, but also that they're, they're seen to be socially responsible. Um, I mean, the whole, the whole YouTube Google thing, I mean, as, as a kid's TV person, has been a huge issue. Um, you know, the fact that Google were forced for YouTube to employ another 10,000 moderators because of all these ads appearing uh, that were inappropriate next to kids' content is a, is, a, is a good thing. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they had to, because commercially they were under threat, because advertisers were threatening to withdraw advertising. So in so doing, the advertisers have forced YouTube to be more responsible and to improve their product for kids and families. That's a good thing. So I think okay, this muscle this, being is shown is actually very powerful. Pardon? Is it more responsible to fire Richard Littlejohn? You know, because that's kind of where Stop Funding Hate well, are going, isn't it? That's what they want to happen. But is that responsible? He does talk to a constituency who buy the Daily Mail because they agree with his views and it is a free country. I mean, look, the, the Daily Mail has its view. It's not one I subscribe to. It's not a paper I would choose to read. Uh, but I wouldn't deny people who want to read the Daily Mail to read the Daily Mail. But, but that I is do what think, Stop Funding Hate want. They but, do want but, to deny the Daily Mail to people who want to buy the Daily Mail. They want, they want the money to dry up no, so that, I, that can't I'm, be I'm saying, I'm saying if someone wants to buy the Daily Mail, they should be free to do so. Um, and the Daily Mail obviously has to comply with the, the laws of the land. But beyond that, I have no issue with them doing what they do. Although I personally don't like the Daily Mail, I don't like what they stand for. I think they actually um, incite all sorts of hatred and they're, they're all sorts of prejudices, which I don't agree with. But I think people should have freedom to choose the Daily Mail if they choose to read the Daily Mail. I mean, I expect, let me put it in a more condensed way. Is there a danger, Naz, that these campaigns and actually the reaction to these campaigns by some of these advertisers withdrawing their support are all being kind of propagated by millennial snowflakes in London. And actually, around the rest of the country, there isn't a real constituency of Daily Mail readers who were offended by Richard Littlejohn's column. You know, that there might be gay Daily Mail readers who are comfortable reading a column by Richard Littlejohn which says, you know, where's the mother in a situation where two men are having a child? And they wouldn't find that a controversial view. You know, that the, the Twitter sphere is way ahead in terms of liberalism to the rest of the country it's supposed to reflect. Yeah, that's true. But um, I guess... The, the kind of good side effect of these things is maybe making those people have to rethink, you know, Richard Little John's view. But I don't know, this is one of those stories where intellectually I agree with not funding the Daily Mail, like pulling advertising, but on a practical level, I don't know, I think it's kind of, I think it's good to have that mix on a page. Well, and also there, there is the risk, isn't there, that, you know, what are these tabloids to do in response to their advertising being withdrawn? might they just become further entrenched and more right-wing and more nasty? I mean, actually, if they yeah. don't have to satisfy Centre Parks as advertisers, yeah. they'll just become... They'll just be all Katie Hopkins all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's the danger of... Um, it, it won't just be an echo chamber of opinion, but also sort of brand vision as well, so kind of perpetuates a, an existing problem, I'd say. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of the Media Podcast was recorded at RunVT in the heart of Soho. RunVT has offline and online suites, 15 and 2 respectively, as well as a sweet bass-like grading theatre, not to mention a rather swanky meeting room, which I am sitting in right now. I'm making it swankier. And here's today's Run VT TV pick, BBC Two series, Charles I's Treasures Reunited, available now on the BBC iPlayer, a show that Run VT provided full post services for. Edit your next show at Run VT. Go to runvt.tv now. Okay, time for some news in brief now. Naz and Paul are still with me. And Rupert Murdoch's not letting go of his bid to buy out the remainder of Sky. Uh, He's promised the Competition and Markets Authority to run Sky News for another 10 years instead of five if they let him buy it outright. Uh, Paul, do you think that would make the watchdog change their mind? They said that uh, it's an inappropriate owner because of pluralism this time round. He's saying, well, I will safeguard Sky News for 10 years. Whether it's five years or ten years, I think, makes very little difference. The reality is that if you take a totally objective view, uh, Murdoch owning The Sun, The Times and Sky News does not make Murdoch dominant in news provision in this country. And and the news radio stations as well, remember? Yeah, but you you take the BBC. I mean, its reach and its hours is far greater, for example, than Murdoch by a massive amount. So The BBC's openly impartial. Murdoch's media isn't all. um, Well, he's required to be impartial in the the UK and broadcasting. There's no question about that. So the the issue is, this is all hot air anyway, because um, if the Disney takeover takes place, then Disney is not going to be uh, under any question at all about its suitability as a broadcaster, or it's going to come under any scrutiny in terms of news provision in the UK, because it has none at all. So um, this is all about uh, attempting to clean this up prior to Disney coming in and closing the deal. If it doesn't get cleaned up, then it won't matter because Disney will then take over and then it'll be be waved through. So the reality is that Sky News is going to remain part of Sky. That's going to happen. This is all hot air. Do you think in the scenario that the Disney deal does go through and Disney then ultimately become the owner of Sky News that because Murdoch has personally said he'd commit to Sky News investment for another decade, they are obligated to do the same? Or do you think the House of Mouse can just say, ah, bollocks to this, we don't need to do UK news? Well, I mean, it depends on the nature of the agreement that is actually uh, finally drafted by the lawyers and whether that becomes a requirement and indeed whether there's a requirement by uh, the government to include that in the transaction. Um, Irrespective of that, I think Disney would keep the uh, news service and the reason is that Sky News brings legitimacy to Sky. Um, It gets politicians into the building. um, It gets Sky News talked about. You know, it helps to make Sky seen as a more rounded, attractive brand. So although Sky News loses loses money and and most news channels do lose money Uh, I can't see Disney not keeping Sky News okay would you feel nervous taking a job at Sky News now Naz yeah maybe a bit 
It's a bit of a reputation thing. I just feel like their reputation hasn't has kind of deteriorated. And it's got news. Yeah. Why? Maybe it's a generational thing as well because I wouldn't see it as like a kind of trusted news source as much as other sources. Me and also it's kind of a bit of a suspicion of broadcast media in my generation, maybe. So. Wow. So, but even so, that applies to the BBC as well, or not? On some level. Um, not not a trust issue with the BBC, maybe sort of a credibility issue. So what, how does that manifest itself, though? You, you've said that you follow the news on Twitter, yeah. but you have a credibility issue watching live news on telly. What does that mean? It means you'd rather think... see the news as interpreted by people who are on the ground than watching journalists who have been doing it for 20 years and, as we've recently found out, are being paid huge amounts of money to tell you about it in trusted terms. But I think there's a, there's a lot of credible journalists on Twitter as well who, like you say, are on the ground and are sort of... Um, following things as they happen and I think first of all a lot of them are affiliated with big institutions but even if they're not they're not necessarily non-credible people because you you know you see their work day in day out so that I think they build that up I see I, I think what we're seeing actually possibly generationally Paul is a distrust of brands and organisations at Big the very time, yeah. At the yeah. very time, all these media companies are consolidating. Younger people are saying, actually, the people I trust are the people to bring me the news. The individuals, it, the individuals, I think. and actually hearing that Murdoch and Disney have done a deal doesn't make me trust it more. Well, it's really interesting because um, we did some research about brands in the UK and the US and, and trust, and asked people under twenty-five what they thought. Uh, who's and we? We, I, I can't name the company because that would be to disclose something inappropriate, but it was done by a reputable research company, right? Okay. Um, and what was interesting, what was the brand that was most trusted by people under 25 in the UK? Have you any idea what the answer was? Media brand or in general? Uh, brand overall, any brand. Um, most trusted brand. Maybe BBC still? No, it was Apple, actually. Huh. It was Apple. Now, Apple, isn't that interesting? Apple, a company who right. basically have proprietary software that stops others actually getting into, their, into it, are dominating the music space, um, you know, dominating a whole series of markets, yet Apple is the most trusted. So I see some conflicts here. I think the point is interesting that there is a move away from broadcast trust by younger people uh, and, and towards social media. And being older, I have the, probably the opposite view. Um, but I think there are some conflicts too. If Apple is very trusted, that seems to me odd. But the the point about someone like me trusting a reporter whose work I follow on Twitter day in, day out, it's also sort of an accountability thing in terms of like, you know, I, you can directly call them out on something they've said or the way they've reported something, whereas trying to call out a big institution is such a big sort of nebulous thing. Well, so that's, a really, did, that's a really yeah. good point, actually. And really what you're doing, there's a modern version of what I would do, which is actually follow a columnist, someone I like who I read in the paper. You know, I'll, I'll seek them out and, and read them because I like their views. What you're doing is actually saying calling them out because you can do that. Yeah. But it's about that trust with that particular person who you follow and you like. Yeah. So it's the same thing, but it's being done in a more uh, yeah. interactive way now. And I think they have to be on top of their game more because... Yeah. They've got that sort of pretty immediate reaction from people. Because all I could do was write a letter to the newspaper and yeah. complain. It might be published a week later, whereas you can do it instantly. Yeah, yeah. and get people to retweet it. Or I, or I could, but tend not to. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? And even within those big brands, I mean, if we take Sky News, for example, it's possibly more relevant these days whether Adam Bolton personally is more remain or leave 
than it is what the views of the broadcaster are. You hear a bit less of, oh, there's an inherent bias in the way it's being broadcast on telly and more about the individuals. Yeah, no, I think so, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you mentioned Apple, so I'm going to segue us on to talk about their new product, HomePod. I have one. I went to the briefing. It was sphincter-tighteningly awkward. Uh, it was British people trying to do the American script where they were you know, seemingly ad-libbing about how great their lifestyles were and really the whole thing made me feel very, very embarrassed. Um, <laughs> I was one-on-one in a posh flat in London, but I did get to walk away with a £400 device to try out at home, so it was almost worth it. Um, it's a smart speaker, Paul. Um, is it basically like Alexa? Because I'm a bit confused about what it actually is. Okay. It is basically like Alexa. Uh, in fact, let's call it Echo, because anyone listening with one of those devices now, if we actually say the A word, it'll start triggering it off. Uh, but it is a bit like Echo. But um, the difference is, according to Apple, and to be fair, this is quite obvious in listening to the product, they've engineered it first and foremost as a speaker. So it's really clever. Don't ask me how, but subwoofers and tweeters and whatever. And what it does basically is it analyzes sound in real time to give you the best possible output of that music. And it does sound incredible. It's a smart speaker. It's not doing the same thing that the Echo is because the Echo costs, what, 60 quid? This costs 400. Completely different thing. It's a top-end device. It sounds amazing. But, Paul, ask me why I hated it. So why did you hate it then? Well, uh, interesting you should ask. Um, it's because funny that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's because it's it's the death knell for for us for radio and for podcasts. Ah, oh, but is it? Good question. Well, um, no, I'll, is I'll it not an opportunity? I mean, I I I have got two smart speakers at okay. home, uh, and I have one I go travelling with, yes. and I always put it in my suitcase, and I love it because I can then link it to my phone, and I can play music in my hotel room, and I've got beautiful quality on a very small speaker. I love it. I love it. I love it. At home, you know, you interrogate, and you're having a party, you can put some nice music on, and it's easy. Um, but I also listen to radio on it. So I found having the speakers in the bedroom and in the living room, I'm actually listening to more radio now but they, than I was before because it's so easy. Amazon connected. They are. Right. So on the Amazon system, you say, A, play me five live. And it, I think it uses TuneIn. Is that right? So TuneIn, yes. Yeah, to play you five live. On Apple system, you say, I'm going to say it. I'm sorry if you are listening with the device now. You say, hey, Siri, play me five live. And it will probably say... I think you mean a song by Arcade Fire in 2002. But if it doesn't say that, uh, it'll say, I can't. So the problem is it's US market-centric, not UK market-centric. No, the problem is it can't play radio. Because it can't Apple, play radio at all? Well, it can play Beats, which, as we all know, isn't proper radio. Oh, because it plays radio. its own radio stations. That's all it can Once play. again, Apple playing its own stuff and not allowing third parties in. Here's the weird little quirk, and well done, everyone at Global. The only UK radio station you can listen to without opening up an app on your phone and beaming it to the speaker is LBC. And the well, good for global radio. Congratulations. For yeah. And the reason for that is Apple don't have a news station. So if you say, I want to listen to the news, it'll offer you the BBC or LBC. Well, do you know what? I'm really glad you mentioned it because hopefully now people listening to this podcast will think, if I want to listen to radio, I'm going to go and buy this product rather than that product. Or maybe Apple might even be listening and might think we should add radio. I mean, adding radio is an obvious thing to do, and I think it's a, an omission by them. So I hope they will change their minds and add radio. I, have no, I don't use a smart speaker. So with this Apple thing, can you not just pull up the podcast app? Yes. You can. You can be but whatever you a... want from your phone via AirPlay, including Spotify, if you want to. So it's not that proprietary. But if you want to speak to it and get it to play, yeah. it won't work. And so if you just say, I want to listen to the media podcast, it, it won't know what to do? Well, thank you for raising that <laughs> issue as well, Naz. Final point on my rant. Um, 
if you say Siri play me the media podcast if it's heard you properly you'd probably have to say play me the media podcast with Ollie Mann and say it really carefully because that's what we're called is that a way of getting your name into this (laughs) it's just a way of getting a name check Ollie Um, Mann if you said that then it would play but here's the issue you can say play me Desert Island Discs and it will play you the last episode of Desert Island Discs but if you say which is a real world dinner party scenario which we've all been in hey play me that episode of Desert Island Discs with Charlie Brooker it can't it can't read its own tags. Okay. It can't say, play me Barack Obama on WTF. And that oh. just seems like, in the real world, when people talk about podcasts, they say, did you hear that episode of something that came out years ago? Well, I'm delighted then with my Amazon Echo. I'm delighted I've got that. <laughs> I won't be buying the uh, Apple. It doesn't sound and as even, good as the Apple And one. even more so, even more so, because it was free from IBC for doing speaking engagements. So it's even better. Okay. Well, for those of you in the real world who aren't getting free speakers like us, <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, be careful. Although, actually, on the always listening point, final point on this... When you talk about Apple as a trusted brand, I mean, that is something that actually I think, in fairness to the chaps at Cupertino, I do trust them to use my information that they're hearing me talking in my own house only to sell me better Apple products. They're not using it for any other purpose. We don't know that about Amazon, do we? I don't trust, I don't trust any of those companies at all. But what else are Apple doing with it? They, they shifty have to, things that none of us know about until they things? happen. They're just, they're just giving us better services. I don't, you know... WhatsApp say they're encrypted, but they're owned by Facebook, which is a free platform that sells you ads. Apple don't. I, I love your trust. I love your maybe naivety too. Uh, right. Let's They've got that weird sort of like kind of sketchy empire vibe, don't they, Apple? That, that's, that's why it's more kind of scary, because you just don't know what they're doing. Mm. They also have good lawyers, so let's move on. Uh, <laughs> I love the Macs. The BBC uh, brought the big guns to Liverpool for the world's largest international TV market to be hosted by a single distributor. Uh, did you see this? Idris Elba walking around, hawking Luther to 700 international TV buyers. You're no stranger to this kind of market, Paul. How did um, it look to you? Well, I, I've been to many markets and I've been to Seoul a few times. Um, the BBC have always done very well in South Korea. I mean, they, they did a version of Top Gear. They did their own version of Top Gear and cast it with Korean guys, not Chris Evans, which actually probably was a very good move, actually, for all sorts of reasons. Um, the, the Korea is a market which has got, you know, huge um, uh, American influence. You know, they're the only other major country in the world that plays baseball. Uh, and American and British shows have always worked very well there. The BBC has got great business there. This is an extension of it. Um, not a huge surprise. Um, it'll work very well for them. And what they managed to sell is what? Are you on top of this? Well, what they're doing, they're selling formats. So what they're doing is they're remaking... Um, existing shows but with Korean actors so they're remaking it for the Korean market remember that Korea is a country of 65 million people so similar size to the UK so they're just making uh, these versions for the Korean market and they'll also sell in Japan too of course Do you think now that remaking a hit show ever really really works? I'm trying to think about British versions of international shows that well, I've Top been Gear was a big success into. Yeah, but in this country, when we, I'm trying to think. I mean, there is, I suppose, The Apprentice. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that earlier. That is basically an American show that's been remade for us, isn't it? No one ever thinks about the yeah. American version. I think, I think it depends on the show because sometimes certain cultural nuances don't travel well. But sometimes the reason you want to watch a show is because of that different cultural yeah. nuance, you know. So I, I think it depends on. It's quite a case by case thing. Like I feel something like Top Gear. It is like those specific characters and those cultural nuances that make it so lovable around the world. 
but I'm not an expert on. Well, it's a British. It is a British sensibility that show, isn't it? It is, but uh, what they did is they cast Koreans who engage with the Korean audience. The best example I'd give, although it's a, a British example going global, and I have to unfortunately mention this show, even though it has a Kevin Spacey component, uh, is um, House of Cards. I mean, House of Cards was a brilliant remake, better than the original, and was fundamentally what drove Netflix and got Netflix to where it is now. So, you know, that's an example that's been a huge success. OK, well, keep your eyes uh, on the Manhwa Broadcasting Corporation. See the Korean versions of Life on Mars and Mistresses coming soon. Um, in other BBC News, did you see the uh, Brit nominee Loyal Khan had pulled out of a Radio 1 Live Lounge performance this week? Uh, Naz, tell us what happened there. Um, so he was asked to play some big hits and he didn't want to do that. So he didn't want to play the gig. In the week leading up to the Brit Awards, every performer on the Live Lounge, where typically you do a cover, was asked to do something relevant to the Radio 1 daytime audience. And he chose, I think, relatively obscure songs by Kendrick Lamar and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then tweeted saying, they won't let me play. Yeah. Where do you stand on that? As an audience member, I I think it's really annoying when artists try and do something obscure when when they're on when they're not in a niche setting. It's like you know when you go to like a gig and um yeah, the artist just refuses to play their big hit because I don't know they have some sort of credibility thing or whatever. I know I don't know. No, it's really interesting to hear you say that because it seems to me from the outside this is maybe an old person's thing again. Like, you know, is it that the people running the live lounge at Radio 1 are a little bit older than their target audience? The target audience might have thought it was cool that he was covering Kendrick Lamar, but the executives might have thought... Because, you know, if he'd have said, I want to cover Tiny Dancer, they'd have been fine with that, and yet the audience would not know that song. You see, I, my, I'm entirely here with uh, Loyal Kana on this, because I mean, when I was running the music at Radio 1, the view was that we would always play uh, stuff that was unknown. The whole purpose of the BBC and the whole purpose of Radio 1 is to uncover new music, give new artists um, a place to play songs you haven't heard before, not just to play uh, the hits. Back I mean, in the middle of daytime in the week of the Brits. Absolutely in the middle of daytime, absolutely critical. Yes, you had to do it in daytime, and live sessions in daytime... And so if, if he wanted to do covers, um, I think it's entirely right that he should be allowed to do covers and Radio 1 should be brave enough to play those in daytime. Radio 1's purpose is not to maximise its audience. This is an executive or somebody concerned about ratings over the purpose of the BBC. And the BBC is about bringing expression to new artists and new songs. So I think the BBC were totally wrong here. But well, I think we- there's a lot of platforms to do that now. Like you don't need the BBC to hear something a bit... Different. But the BBC is funded by public money, so it's its responsibility to do that. The BBC right. must do that. If the BBC does what the commercial market does, why have the BBC? I'll stop paying my licence fee. OK, right. but, I see that. but the truth is the BBC does behave like the commercial market in that, um, you know, they're doing this presumably tie-up with all the major record labels in the lead-up to the Brit Awards. You know, this is all about promoting this artist that a lot of people haven't heard of who was nominated for Brits. His record label probably didn't want him to cover Kendrick Lamar. They probably wanted him to cover S Club 7. Look, when, when I was running the music at Radio 1, Little we had a huge reference. pressure from <laughs> huge pressure. Uh, and the, the audience then was twice what it is now, right? Huge pressure from record companies to play certain records, to, to promote certain artists. And you have to resist it. You have to listen to it and you have to make a judgment. And your judgment must be based on what is the right editorial decision for Radio 1. And Radio 1 must be about supporting new artists and playing unknown music and playing fresh stuff. And this is, this is fundamental to the existence of Radio 1. It's fundamental to what it's there, there for. You do not bow to the pressure of record executives. Except you're basically saying, as the boat sailed amongst their target audience, Radio 1 is seen as the establishment, so 
they might as well do covers of Little Mix. Um, yes, but I actually feel convinced by Paul's argument. Oh, goodness yeah. me. Thank you. I'm very <laughs> impressed by that. Look, I mean, Ra- Radio 1's always had this problem. I think Radio 1's always been seen as establishment because it's part of the BBC, and we had that problem too. And, I mean, I think Radio 1 now is reasonably cool. I mean, it's still the BBC, but it's still okay, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I, no, yeah. I, I'm convinced by that. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> Paul, I'm going to call this segment... I'm feeling young again. It's so fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, Paul, I'm going to call this segment uh, Drawing on Your Past Career Highlights to offer an interpretation of the news. Uh, Because having discussed your Radio 1 past, I now want your views uh, following your brief stint as Radio Academy Chair. And there's a new one of those. Uh, It is uh, founding member of Choice FM, Dr Yvonne Thompson, CBE, new chair of the Radio Academy, and John Dash, former programme director at Radio Clyde, becoming her deputy. What do you make of that? Uh, I think it's a really good appointment. Um, I don't actually know Yvonne. It's odd, this, because I was involved at Choice FM at the very beginning. In fact, we programmed Choice FM actually from Milton Keynes from Children Radio. Um, Clive Dickens, who was my head of music, then did, the, the, did the music. music and I was also FM. a shareholder. In, I was also a shareholder in Choice FM. I remember having a meeting with Daddy Ernie, who was one of their early DJs. Extraordinary. I don't know. I don't know Yvonne at all. But it sends a very good message about inclusion. Um, radio is still uh, a bit too white. Uh, radio is still a bit too male. Um, and this sends a, a very woman. this yeah. sends a very strong message. Well, it, it, okay, it sends a strong message, but then you've also sent another message, which is you don't know her and you've not worked with her. So, I mean, it, you know, of course, it's good to have diversity at the top of the tree. But on the other hand, if someone's leading the major industry union for the radio industry and people don't know her, is that helpful? Well, she's not a big name. I mean, she's not a well, big name. No, at, she's yeah. not a big name. And I suppose I might have met her in thirty-five years, sure, but, of course. I, but I haven't. Yeah, yeah. But I think, look, she, but there's she's a big c- task for the Radio Academy, not least getting global back into the. Well, area I was going to say the big the big issue for the Radio Academy is the Radio Academy is almost irrelevant now. Uh, because Global and Bauer have their own organisations, do their own talent development, do their own uh, awards and so on. Uh, Global Radio, the single biggest operator with classic uh, LBC, Capital, Heart, uh, Choice, uh, Capital Extra now, don't have, uh, aren't members of the Radio Academy. So the issue for the Radio Academy is making itself inclusive for the whole industry. This is a very smart move in terms of representation, but they've got other big issues to deal with. Now, as you're not a white man, no. what do you think of her appointment? Um, I feel mixed. On one hand, I'm a big fan of diversity, but also mm, I... My question is whether this will lead to there being more opportunities for people from diverse backgrounds in radio lower down on the tree. Talk us through what needs to happen to allow that to happen, because that will be in her entry. That's something she can do. I mean, what are the events that you would have liked the Radio Academy to have organised, you know, at the stage in your career where that would have been relevant three, four, five years ago? You know, it's hard to say because I'm not sure if it's so much an event thing rather than a mindset thing. So a thing of like, for example, editors being open to different approaches or different ways of telling stories, reporting that might not fit into a more traditional, dare I say, sort of white male way of doing things. Um, So while I think it's great to have her as head, it really depends on are the editors in the middle or like the people who commission, are they actually going to be up for sort of a diverse set of, um, diverse approach to radio really? Oh, no, you're, you're right, because the Radio Academy doesn't affect any of that. Mm. You know, it's, it's an organisation that has an awards and, and, and has a, a, a conference and, and, you know, it's There's sort no of a, reason why a talking shop. That. I mean, in the what past, math- it has been a bit more than that. It yeah, has it's, it, yeah, it has been, but it's now, it's now a, a pale imitation of what it used to be. Um, it it what is really, a paid position, though, right? Pardon? It's a paid position. Being it's said. a paid position. How many yes, days it a week is, is it? Um, I don't know, one day a week, probably. I mean, the Radio Academy's income is very small. Um, it's going to be a very, very modest amount of, of money. I, I mean, mean do, you, do you feel. I mean, you, you said before we started recording that basically you don't know a great deal about the Radio Academy. My proposition <laughs> to you is you should. It's not your fault. 
No, well, it's this... a problem with the Radio Academy that you're not a member of the Radio Academy and know all about it. No, well, this, this is weird because I've worked in radio for about 10 years. So um, actually, my f- I hate to sort of sound a bit niche when I say this, but I feel like... I can't believe you, you first apologise for uh, being cynical <laughs> and then for being niche. You're on the media podcast. <laughs> I feel like these days, if you want to be diverse, you start a podcast or you go to an indie. And, and I think, just going back to podcasting, just because I'm involved in it right now, I think part of the reason why it's doing so well is because people are sick of like, oh, I don't want to have to fit into this other style. I'm going to just start my own thing. It's so easy. There's such a buzz. So while, while I think it's great that they've appointed this person, I also wonder if it's that relevant right now. What is far more relevant is what Bob Shannon is doing at BBC Radio. Uh, to address uh, a diverse recruitment policy and ensure that uh, women and, and non-white uh, men are at senior positions in the BBC. And there's a way to go there. OK, there is just time for our media quiz. This week is modelled closely on the afternoon game show classic Blockbusters. Ask your parents. There's no hexagonal board. Can I pee, please, Ollie? Uh, <laughs> you've got to wait five minutes. It's down the stairs. Uh, there's no Bob Holness here, and there's no theme tune which should please our lawyers. Here are the rules. Now's you're too young, so I'll explain. Concentrate. Uh, I'll give you the first letter of the answer, uh, and as soon as you know it, the answer, you buzz in with your name. So, Naz, you will say... Naz. And Paul, you will say... Not Naz. It's best of three. There are no prizes except posterity. Here is letter is number P. one. P for posterity. It's a, it's a W, <laughs> actually. Are you ready? Let's play not blockbusters for legal reasons. Which W launched a crowdfunding campaign? Naz. Yes, Naz. Let me, I'll, I'll complete the question. Which W launched a crowdfunding campaign and a lock-in at the station to keep themselves on air? We're all radio stations. Correct. Well done. Yes, this is the uh, We're All Radio presenters, Ian Kenyon and Beverly Macker, uh, a.k.a. Del Walden, uh, locking themselves in a studio after the station announced it would close because of financial pressures after 15 years. Do you think they'll stop the uh, tide, Paul, or do you think We're All Radio is going to close? They'll be crossing their legs for a long time. <laughs> do you think it's, it was... I mean, it was a bit Alan Partridge, wasn't it, locking themselves in the studio? It's, yeah, it's totally... Was it Radio North Norwich? Uh, yeah, I mean, OK, I feel for them. Look, I'm sorry. North, North the trouble is that small-scale radio stations are suffering in the same way that small newspapers are, you know, very hard to make them pay. And, uh, you know, the Wirral's not a big area. It's got Radio City and many other stations in that patch. They're going to struggle. Really sorry for these guys. I'd go and get another job, I think. I, think it's, I think it's great what they've done, though, because, you know, these things mobilise communities. Yeah. And I it think won't have any effect, though. Might it won't do. achieve anything. No, it won't. Well, I, I mean, the crowdfunding might be used for some other purpose, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like, they won't make any money. They won't get any money. A Wirral-based podcast? I don't see it happening. <laughs> wow. Okay, sorry. Here's, here's letter <laughs> number two. <laughs> Voice of realism. Which S is the number of regional papers getting a rebrand under plans to streamline their online offering by owners Trinity Mirror? Which S is the number? There aren't many numbers beginning with S. Six? Uh, you've got a buzzing with your name. Oh, sorry, Paul? Paul. Six. Uh, seven. It's seven, okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Not Paul, not seven, no, seven. Okay, seven is the answer, I think, Ollie. Seven, yeah, I said seven first time, didn't I? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, seven regional dailies will get new websites as publisher Trinity Mirror rolls out its live online. Have you seen this? So it's like the Birmingham Mail is now going to be Birmingham Live, the Bristol Post is now going to be Bristol Live, etc. I'm really sad because I work for the Coventry Evening Telegraph, so that's another one of the papers involved here. So Coventry Live doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? I have to change my CV. I, you see, it's clever, I think, Naz, isn't it? I mean, obviously, shame for people who are going to lose their jobs over this, 50 jobs at risk, they reckon. Um, but actually, strategically, and as a consumer, I'd sort of rather go on a... 
you know, my local place live website than my local place post relating to it. But the heritage of those brands is so, so strong. You know, th- th- those brands are part of the community. Why do you think Trinity Mirror are saying that, you know, that's less well, relevant than getting live eyeballs? Because they, 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 need, they need to do exactly what you say, get live eyeballs and re- revitalise. But I do think there's a, a heritage you know, with those, those titles, as, as there is with radio stations too. I mean, look at the number of radio stations that have moved away from the name they've had for years and then had to rebrand again uh, five years later because they found it's lost, uh, lost some listeners. OK, well, you're listening to Media Talk, sorry, Media Podcast. Uh, and here is question number three. You ready? It's the yes. tie break, even though Paul didn't sort of get that right. Uh, <laughs> I'm on minus one, am I now? Uh, which A is the national broadcaster who's applied to Ofcom to switch off some of their AM transmitters? Absolutely. Buzz in when you know the oh, answer. Paul, as you can sorry, steal this, Paul. Yes, it is absolute, yes. I'm not very good at this, am I? Uh, well, it's been a long time since Bob Holness, you know. Compared to our other contributors. <laughs> Although Simon Mayo did actually do it recently, didn't he, for Sky? He did, yeah. Yeah, and only a couple of seasons didn't go any further. Uh, Absolute Radio has applied to the regulator to switch off a number of its AM transmitters. It's got national DAB coverage, but it wants to turn off some of its smaller infill transmitters. This is like the bits that mean you can listen when you live in some remote part of North Wales. Yeah, because the DAB coverage is not the same as the medium wave coverage, AM coverage, so it's turning off where where there's there's no need. I mean, it's it's a smart thing to do. Of course it is. I mean, every transmitter costs lots of money, and of course AM transmitters cost a lot more than FM transmitters because they use a lot more electricity. Right, but they got the licence to broadcast on AM because they were serving the whole country. That was what they agreed to. Yeah, that was a long time ago. That was 1995. I think the world's changed a bit since then. But what if you live in one of these places where you, you can't listen to the AB because there isn't a signal? Well, I mean, it's a bit like this whole issue about whether you have switched off in total. I mean, uh, again, you know, we're now at 50% of total listening by hours is actually to digital radio. And 2010, the government said, when we get to that point, we'll consider switch off. I don't think it's going to happen. The question is, at what point do you switch off? At some point, you've got to say, we're going to switch off because that will then motivate people to go and buy a DAB radio. Quick Radio 1 story. When Radio 1 was on AM, we were desperately trying to get people to move across to FM. And although FM was there in London, people were still listening on AM, even though there was FM. And the only way to push them was to say, we are turning AM off. And what it did is it moved them all to FM. Got you've no got choice. to sometimes give people a bit of a stick to change their behaviour. Yeah, but hold on, you then launched Talk Radio UK, which took over the Radio 1 frequencies on AM, didn't you? Of course. Yeah, so there's an audience for it. There was then. And there still is. Well, there was then. No, no. I mean, AM, AM was very significant uh, 20 years ago. And Talks 40 years ago, totally significant, Five but not Live. now. Five Live's an exception because the thing about Five Live is if you want to listen to Premier League football and you haven't got Sky or you're not actually available to watch the TV, you will put up, you will put up with, with bad quality. Naz, if you were running Ofcom, I mean, I'm sure it's only a few months away. And I came to you and said, I want to save 50% of my budget by turning off 5% of my transmitters, but it does mean 5% of people aren't going to hear my station. Would you say yes or no? Yeah, probably. Good woman, good for you. <laughs> That's I mean, it. The point is, what happens is I'll go and buy DAB radio. Job done, right? Well, this, in, this entire conversation is really confusing for me because I've never consumed radio that way <laughs> so i'm like is it is it really What's bad i just radio we end with is it okay. really bad i admitted that as no a, no that's fine have you literally never listened to a medium wave station no i have but i feel like when i was a kid just when you were forced and, to in the back of the car uh, yeah like my dad see, was having when to you were a kid which is obviously more than your few, parents are sort of, of making you am is now redundant only uh that is it for our show for today my thanks to paul <laughs> robinson and to Ness Tarrant. have a can i have that pee please now uh if you yeah one minute if you like what we're up to here on the media podcast and you enjoy the feeling of giving people 
money, then do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Just head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. Grisdale or Grisdale? Grisdale. Grisdale. Welcome to the team, Becky. Uh, the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.